Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. That's correct. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, February 27th, 2020, in the year 2020. Uh, of course, this is a, a podcast. Lord knows when you're going to be listening to this, you could be listening to this 100 years from now. Uh, so just to give you uh, an idea of what's going on in the world uh, on the day of this interview, Trump taps Pence to lead response as virus spreads. Coronavirus is spreading, and Trump urges calm as re- virus case reported in California. These are the headlines on the newspapers I have in front of me. And folks, if you're alive in the year 2092 and listening to this thing, uh, let me just tell you this. The notion of President Trump urging calm is completely contradictory in and of itself. Uh, but anyway, we're a political talk show, but we're not going to be talking so much about current politics uh, in this particular issue. Just wanted to open up with that little uh, reminder of what the world is like today. As we do on all, all bonus episodes of the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves, their name, their uh, title, and anything they want to say about themselves. Uh, and then we begin the conversation. So distinguished guest number one, please introduce yourself. My name is Elisha Duncan. I'm the artistic director at Lifeline Theater. Very good. Distinguished guest number two. I don't know how distinguished, but I'm Charles <laughs> Johnson. Um, I am the author of a book called Middle Passage, a novel that got the National Book Award in 1990, which Elisha has adapted into a fabulous play. And uh, the play is playing where? And uh, when can people see it? Give us some of that information, Alicia, before I take the deep dive. The play is currently running at Lifeline Theater in Rogers Park. It's running uh, until April 5th. So you can get tickets by going to www.lifelinetheater.com. And the address? Do you have that off? 6912 North Glenwood Avenue. Very good. Right off the Morris Red Line stop. All right, before we get into the issue of Middle Passage, the play itself, how you adapted a, uh, a novel into a play, uh, let me just take a moment to, to tell folks uh, that this gentleman, Charles Johnson, who's sitting across the table from me, has been a presence in my life, even though he didn't realize this, uh, from the moment I was a young high school scholar at Evanston Township High School, struggling with algebra, Charles. Okay, algebra. I really struggle with algebra, <laughs> but I passed it, all right? I just want you to know that. So uh, a dear friend of mine back in the day, uh, Clarence, if you're listening, uh, is the younger cousin of Charles Johnson. And so uh, Charles Johnson was like the older cousin who existed out somewhere in the world outside of our little adolescent corner <laughs> of things. And we would talk about him from time to time. And uh, 
you know, and then when you, you became uh, well-known and you had your success, when uh, Middle Passages came out, you won the National Book Award, you're a MacArthur Genius Fellow, uh, it would be always like, oh, yeah, that's Clarence's older cousin. And uh, it took the adaption of your novel into a play for me to finally meet you. So it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. It is a pleasure and an honor for me to be able to sit here across from you and discuss <laughs> old times and new times. Old times and new times. So they're totally embedded in middle passages. Just as a, as a sort of start, Charles, talk about how your upbringing in Evanston or how your worldview as a kid coming of age uh, in the 60s and the early 70s led to middle passages, writing the novel, or was there no connection whatsoever? No one has ever asked me that question before. I grew up in Evanston in the 50s and uh, the 60s. I graduated from the same high school you went to in 1966, Evanston Township High School. Wild kids, right? And, <laughs> right. Um, and it was a, a very comfortable suburb to grow up in. That's what I felt. Uh, I thought it was a kind of little leave it to beaver suburb, you know. Um, I, I enjoyed my childhood there, um, and, and the high school was really quite good. I had good teachers. Mm -hmm. I set up an award, actually, uh, for one of my creative writing teachers, Marie Claire Davis, because um, called the Marie Claire Davis Award, given to a senior every year for the best portfolio of creative writing because I took her creative writing class. And she took three stories that I wrote and put them in the literary section of the Evanstonian, the school paper. Wow. Those were my first publications. Those three stories I wrote in her creative writing class. So, and she's passed away now, but uh, we set up an award for her in her name for students there. So yeah, it was a good upbringing, I think. So when you were uh, a kid coming of age, when you were even going to college, were you aware of what the middle passages literally was? No. I, was it was something that was never taught to you in class? It was, oh, well, the curriculum when I was there at the high school did not include any black writers mm -hmm. or any black history. That was all marginalized. I didn't encounter that until I went away to college. And that was when you had across the country with black college students protesting that they wanted black studies, they wanted black teachers. And I was then an undergraduate, so I participated in the uh, first big survey course on black history at Southern Illinois University. I was one of 10 discussion group leaders, and there were no black faculty. So the graduate students at Southern Illinois University did the lectures. One of them is a friend of mine, Tom Slaughter, and we both went on to Stony Brook University to get our PhDs in philosophy. Uh, but yeah, at Evanston Township High School, there this was you know, 62 to 66, mm -hmm. uh, black life history was all marginalized. It wasn't there. It, it's, it's, it's interesting. It changed almost as soon as you walked out the door because that's sort of when uh, yeah. the civil rights movie, movement erupted in Evanston and it became part of the curriculum. It took a while, but it came out. It's in those years, 66 to 68 or, or thereabout. Mm -hmm. And when I was in that discussion group, I mean, the, the survey course I talked about where I was one of 10 undergraduate discussion group leaders, mm -hmm. uh, that's where I first saw that cross-section of a slave ship with the silhouetted figures of slaves spoon fashion crammed into the hold of a ship. It was a black um, graduate student in history who was lecturing that day and he put it up on the overhead projector. So that engraved itself in the emotion of my mind. I said, I can't believe this. 
I cannot, I cannot believe this is how we got here and uh, this kind of suffering. So before I graduated, I started writing novels. And the second one I wrote was an earlier version of Middle Passage, which I was not ready to write at the time. But I began the research on the slave trade, uh, the Atlantic slave trade, Oh, around 1969, 1970. So when I got to the version of the novel that I started again, and it would have been 1983 um, maybe, mm-hmm. I worked six years on it. Uh, I'd already done 17 years of research on the Middle Passage and black American history from the time I was undergraduate. And the only thing I didn't have when I came to the novel again, um, I want to say it was like 19, it was published in 1990, so go back six years. That's when I started. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the literature of the sea, so I had to immerse myself in virtually every sea story I could get my hands on, all of Melville, but not for the stories, rather for the props, the costumes, how you know the ships, you know how those are made, and then um, you know there's uh, it's a whole literature, and so I immersed myself in that. The Sinbad stories and uh, the Jack London, you know, Sea Wolf, uh, just anything related to the sea. Anything related? Did you actually ever go on sea? Do, are you a sea no, traveler? No, no, no. I, I, the only water I've been on is a ferry boat on Puget Sound <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in the north. Swimming off the rocks at, uh, at Evanston beaches. You know, it's so nice to sit. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Lake Michigan, right? You sit there and, and you just chill out and look across at wherever it is, uh, Michigan. Right? I'm really going to refrain from Evanston nostalgia and talk about all the things we did on the rocks uh, of the beaches at Evanston back Uh-oh. in the 70s. Yeah, yeah and that will get me in a lot of trouble, uh-huh. uh, although it's legal now. Uh, all right. So um, in terms <laughs> in terms of doing the research, uh, the Middle Passage, first of all, just tell our listeners, some of our listeners may be young, they may not realize exactly what you mean with Middle Passage. Just explain that to uh, our listeners. Well, it's a general term that applies to that passage of slaves who were purchased in West Africa um, in slave forts. First, they were captured in the interior. Then they were taken to the slave forts. Mm -hmm. Then the Europeans would come to the slave forts uh, dotting the west coast of Africa and make their purchase of human beings and put them in these ships and then ship them to the New World. Um, that's the Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that, that period between actually two worlds. It's actually during that period, I believe, and I've argued this before, that this is when we actually get a sense of black identity. Because what's being brought to the forts are people from different tribes. They identify with their tribe. They don't call themselves Africans, but when they're put on those ships and thrown together Mm -hmm. and treated as one people by Europeans, that's when you get a sense of common identity. So by the time they arrive, you know, they they still have their tribal connections and so forth, but they realize they have uh, something in common. And that happens in my novel, On the Ships. Um, That that sense of a new identity Mm -hmm. born out of all that suffering. Yeah. By the way, there's a, a in, in some ways there's a, a similarity uh, between Jews, German Jews, and Russian Jews. Back in the day, they had a they distinguished one another. And then after Hitler, I'm like, what is this distinction about? You know, yeah. like one group thinks it's superior to the other group. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're from Germany. <laughs> Why would you even want anything to do with Germany? Anyway, that's my little. Uh, editorial aside, but there's some parallels yeah, when I heard that. I see that, yeah. Now, when you were studying 
uh, the Middle Passages. Uh, what kind of research was there available for uh, a young college kid in like 1970? You know, was there uh, like actual... Uh, Actually, there's slave narratives. Narratives, that's how I was getting that. Slave mm-hmm. narratives, uh, histories. Um, that material was there. And there's much, much more now. I'm looking at a thousand-page manuscript that's been sent to me, submitted actually to the University of Chicago. It, it, it hasn't uh, been published yet. But um, the title uh, is I Will Take to the Sea. And so all of the pieces in there are essays and articles written about black people mm-hmm. who took to the sea, who mm-hmm. became sailors. There's a whole history there of that that nobody knows anything about. There's a black pri- a pirate um, with an all-black crew, you know, back in the 19th or 18th century. You know, it's a chapter we don't know very much about. So, Middle Passage, the novel, I wrote it not only to show you the horrors of what it's like to be in the hold of a slave ship mm-hmm. and what the daily routine was, I actually wrote it also to be a rousing sea adventure story because the slaves who are taken on that ship take it over. There's a mutiny. Um, there are two mutinies, actually, uh, if you read the novel, between the crew against the captain and then the slaves against the crew. And the main character, Rutherford Calhoun, is caught in the middle yeah. because he can understand the Africa. He's black American. He's free, but he's young, and he doesn't understand the real meaning of freedom yet. So he's on that ship, and so he's one of the crew because he stows a board in order to escape a forced marriage in New Orleans that he's not ready for, but he goes, therefore, from the frying pan into the fire because he doesn't know this is a slave ship until he gets on it. And so, yeah, it, it's a drama. A, a friend of mine, uh, another professor, once said the novel starts out as a picaresque because Rutherford is a rogue and a picaro. Yeah. Then it moves to, the, to being an epic because it's about the middle passage. And then in the end, it becomes a romance because he reconnects with a woman he didn't want to marry with, but now he's really ready to marry and because he's grown up and got his butt kicked at sea, yeah. which is what he needed. Um, so yeah, it, it, it cycles through almost three genres as you go from you know the opening until the ending. All right, let's bring uh, Alicia Duncan in and uh, talk about the adaptation of the novel uh, that Charles Johnson just uh, sort of described, told us a little bit about. What are some of the challenges of adapting a novel at sea for a play uh, in Rogers Park in Chicago? When I first approached the material, which was some time ago, I mean, it took us a long time to adapt it. And uh, it was because I read the book and went, this is so theatrical. This I see it on stage. It has to happen. And started working on it. And I happened to be talking to my colleague, David Barr, one day. And I said, you know, I really want to adapt this book. I think it's it just screams at me. I can see the characters. I can almost I can see it happening. And he's like, "Well, what is that?" And I said, "Well, it's Middle Passage um, by Charles Johnson." And he's like, oh, "I was thinking that same thing." So then we started working together on it. But the challenge of it, I think, is figuring out. Well, you know the story. You know whose story it is. We we're following Rutherford throughout it because he writes, he's writing the log book. So we're actually looking at that journey from beginning to end. Um, but what do you, what do you retain in the story? What's important to follow and what's, what's more theatrical? What do we, what do we leave out? What yeah. is, what are things that could distract an audience? Because you can't put the whole book on stage. So 
it, it's really trying to figure out the through line of that story and it's being his. But I think originally adapted it, there were lots of voices that were telling that story and uh, got that opportunity to see it for almost five years ago and wanted to, to do more with it. I really wanted to make it more, um, uh, what would happen to it if it could go on be from the smaller theater that we worked on and what aspects were missing. And so it's this epic narrative, but it's also these relationships and stories. And so I wanted to deal more with mm-hmm. what really drives him to see, and that is that relationship with Isadora. So this version of it has more uh, connection to that to that grounding, uh, what we call in the theater, inciting mm-hmm. incident, what, what makes him take that journey and it's really his connection to her um and at that time yes he doesn't he's too young to understand he doesn't know that freedom isn't free Mm. and he thinks he's a free man but he's really entrapped by all all of his ideas and what he's chasing after as a youth um so trying to understand that more so i could get into that story and then i just started writing a lot of music as well and half the music disappeared but it's still wondering what what was the musical life inside that journey because it's such a part of our culture um, of black culture is really also the sound of it. It's not just the feel of it, it's just what it sounds like and and how we connect uh, to to that journey. Charles, did you think your book uh, lent itself to a stage adaptation? I didn't know if it would or wouldn't until four years ago when I saw Arlisa's first production called Rutherford's Travels. It had that title because that was my working title for six years. I was thinking in very Swiftian terms, mm-hmm. like Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels, Travels. Um, but changed it at the last minute to Middle Passage. And, and I saw it, and I was stunned. Um, it was riveting. It, it, the time went by so quickly. The performances, um, I don't know who's... In playing who in, in this version, but before it was really good. And the reviews here in Chicago, you can check these out. They were stellar. Mm-hmm. They they were just over the top. They considered it to be a masterpiece. Uh, that production mm-hmm. four years ago. So I know it's even better now. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure at all. No. Uh, Alicia, when uh, Charles was talking about uh, the book serving two purposes, uh, on one hand. Uh, is showing the routine on the slave ship, which is essentially showing the horror on the slave ship, uh, and then a rollicking sea adventure. Uh, how do you deal with those two contrasting storylines in, in, in an adaptation? They have to coexist because it's the story of how Rutherford connects with his with his past or with with his essence when he meets this tribe of. Africans brought on board, so it it has to coexist. So that was the. It's not the easy part because it was difficult. It's difficult to stage that and to to witness those aspects and um, really how the cast comes together and works through that is all is really what was important to me is that they understood each other's journeys, and so we we did a lot of work around what that means to step into someone else's shoes, what that means to be um, shackled, what that means to be treated like cattle, 
which is what what the whole idea of being chattel slavery means. Um, but at the same time, what that means to seek freedom and, and how they achieve it. Yeah, I, I'm visualizing the production I saw before. There's a moment, it's the first moment when we see the Al-Museri, that's the tribe that I made up for this book, we see them on stage, and it's pretty riveting. Uh, it, I don't know if you've done it the same way again, no. uh, but it is, um, it, it's, a, it's an electri electrifying moment when you see, actually see human beings in shackles and chains on stage. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's powerful. How many people are we talking about in, sh in chains? Are you allowed to tell us without giving anything away? Well, it's we could only fit so many people on stage, so I don't think it's more than five, but they're representing a hundred people. I mean, they're representing a lot more, so yeah. The fascinating thing to me is just what she just said. It's the whole experience of theater, mm -hmm. what you can achieve on the stage that you cannot do the same way in a novel. Um, and I, I don't have a theater background, so for me it's fascinating to see how Alicia's imagination mounts mm -hmm. certain things and uses metaphors, visual metaphors. Um, or one thing stands for many things, like you said, five for maybe 50 slaves. Um, so it, it's a unique in interpretation, uh, entirely her interpretation, but it's only possible because of her imagination working with what you know, uh, was a novel. And, uh, the Middle Passage is very much a novel. It's, it's about language, too. The language um, that Rutherford uses mm -hmm. um, is, is very much the language of the sea. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, since your novel came out, there's been more uh, uh, movies about slavery. Uh, the middle I, I, Passage, you mean? Yeah. Uh, since you're, since well, slavery. You, yeah, slavery. Well, middle, literally the Middle Passage. I'm thinking of um, the movie, I'm blanking on the name, uh, the Steven Spielberg director. Uh, thank you. Uh, she knows her stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, just been more movies about slavery itself than, than had been the case uh, when you came out with Middle Passage in 1990. Uh, in general, what what's your sort of take on the way popular culture deals with this issue? Well, Amistad is, is basically a courtroom. The movie is a courtroom drama. Mm -hmm. It's not really, and they have a little montage. Is it a montage? It's a little section where they show you slaves on ships, but it's-, it's The opening- uh, the, open, the, the whole opening, opening is, 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 is visually stunning. Yeah, yeah, it's, but, it, yeah, because it's so graphic. Yeah. But it's not set on a ship. It's, cool. it's, it's set in Boston. It's about a trial. Mm -hmm. um, and that was decades ago. We have had a lot of a lot of films that have been done now on the subject of slavery, as if people are rediscovering it. It isn't like these stories are new. Okay, um, Twelve Years a Slave" uh, is from um, the Solomon uh, Northrup mm -hmm. slave narrative. Mm -hmm. PBS did that as a drama decades ago, before you know it was done as a motion picture. Um, Think about it. Slavery in America lasted for 244 years. This was a slave state, this country, right? Mm -hmm. 244 years. I dated from 1619 to um, 1865 or so with liberation, right? I mean, the Emancipation Proc 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 Proclamation. Mm -hmm. So in 244 years, you have virtually every kind of arrangement between human beings, black and white, over generations that you can imagine. Um, 
So, yeah, there are a lot of stories that can be told. Um, you know, you've got those stories right after the Civil War uh, done by the plantation school that were cleaning up and trying to dress up slavery and put it into a gone-with-the-wind kind of uh, a feeling and minimizing the horror of being the property of chattel property of, of another human being. There are multiple stories, mm-hmm. slave narratives out there about slave revolts and about slaves who ran away. And, you know, th- this is an, an incredibly important part of American history. But I want to, I, I want to tell readers this, too. That was two centuries ago. We are not living right now in a period of slavery, okay? And we really have to, as much as our appreciation is for the past and what happened, because these are our ancestors and our predecessors, we have to focus on the here and now and the future. That's my future. That, that's my little speech for the day. Oh, I'd like to get you delve into that a little more. What do you mean by that? Uh, what, I mean, what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. I mean that... We're talking about something, again, that happened 200 years ago. It has impact and ramifications for the present moment. But I'm Buddhist. I I have to put that out there and let you know that I'm I'm a practicing Buddhist. And so I really do have to live in the here and the now and the present moment. Not in the past and not in the future. If 30% of my energy and mind is in the past and 30% is in the future, that means I'm only 30% here right now talking to you. And I'd much rather be 100%. Right here, right now, engaging with you. Uh, So the past is remembered. Um, I'm not blind to it, but I'm not bound by it either. But we're so influenced by the past. Well, and another thing that I would add to that, and I, I respect where you're coming from, but we are, I think, as a country, stuck. And I say we're in a state of arrested development because we won't deal with it. There's too much, and so so we're sitting here in a state where people, where we have a government who wants to return us to that state of what call when you're saying make America great again. A lot of these policies and things that are being uh, rolled back are to me putting us in a state. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at uh, Ava DuVernay's movie uh, documentary called, thir- was it 13? 13th. She's talking about the whole idea that has slavery really ended because we're in the pipeline from school to jail and the whole idea that black folks, black and brown folks are captured, still in captivity mm-hmm. because of how they treat imprisoned people and how this whole uh, imprison- prison system, right? So there is that. So I think that until we can address that and really address it, we can't move forward. So we, we somehow remain stuck in this place where we can't move beyond racism. I want to agree with Elisa because I think this is a very dangerous moment in American history, even more dangerous and tumultuous and iffy than the late 60s. Um, this is a critical moment in American history. And how things turn out, probably, in the, hey, in the next year even, maybe, will have a lot to do with determining maybe the situation of black Americans until the end of this century. We have to have knowledge of the past. That is absolutely crucial. If, not, if you don't know about your past, then you're walking around in a vacuum. But by the same token, 
I am very reticent to use, to project back onto the past our values today, because the past was, hope, believe me, it was different mentally and experientially and existentially mm-hmm. uh, from where we are today. And um, so I, I'm just very, very cautious about reading back our present situation by going backwards. I, I understand what you're saying. It, it kind of blew my mind when you, were, you went on that riff. Uh, about your Buddhist beliefs and and how they influence your worldview, because I'm just going to pretend you're my therapist here, uh, uh, Charles. I am so stuck in my past. They make first of all, they tease me about it all the time on the show because for, I stopped listening to music after 1979. So like my whole world is fused by the 70s. I'm such a 70s guy in so many ways. When I met you, what was the first thing I did? I started talking about Evanston High School and your <laughs> younger cousin and how I went to your so so I'm very much part linked to my past and I'm very much influenced by things that happen so uh, in my past so for instance I'm a little political I promised you I would not get political but in 1972 George McGovern uh, ran as a Democratic candidate uh, for president Charles Johnson may be the only person in this room who remembers that other than me (laughs) and uh, and he was swamped Okay, he was swamped. And the lesson that all the great minds in the Democratic Party took from that election was that never again would we allow a person left at the center to run with our party's leadership. Okay, I know this has nothing to do with your play, so I apologize for this little. But we're talking about that with Sanders right now. That's why you're going there. That is exactly. And so I deal with so many people my age, with my worldview, who are stuck in that past. So when you went on that riff about how we should be in the present and we should not be burdened by our past we should not be we should not be uh you know have like a a weight on our shoulders i was thinking that's what flashed into my mind about how much people today are preoccupied what what what, with what went on in the early days of their life all right let me say this and let me do a little plug or advertisement for the book i have coming out in may which is called grand a grandparent's wisdom for a happy life uh from harper collins and what the book is is um, my 10 points of advice to my eight-year-old grandson, Emery. Now, I start out talking in the beginning, okay, like, you know, I'm really hesitant um, to talk about, you know, giving him advice because what is wisdom? It's something that, you know, you learned in the past, okay? Is it applicable now to the present and this young person's life? Hey, he has to learn coding the way that we learned to use a typewriter in the 60s, right? That's common now. So what wisdom can I pass on that doesn't break down between generations? Well, I think our much maligned generation, the baby boomers, that's what we are. We were born right after World War II, right? Uh I do think there's some things that we can communicate to the you know the generation Z or X or whatever <laughs> that might be pertinent to their lives yeah. if they don't remember, for example, McGovern. But by the same token, you can't get stuck back there. Uh, fair enough. Although I will say it's kind of ironic you, you're saying this or your play is uh, mi- uh, Middle Passage about the slave trade. Uh, but I agree with you. At the same time, uh, I don't think we can avoid avoid the past the past is just like surrounding us and influencing us all the time 
Uh, and uh, so we'll leave it there. We'll have this debate. Maybe you can come back with, to talk about Grand when it comes out. And we can do a whole riff <laughs> yeah, yeah. on training. Because I'm feeling liberated by the, the millennials on uh, many ways, politically speaking, Charles. I just, I know this has got nothing to do with your play. We're going to come back to your play. But mm -hmm. I just feel liberated by them. Their attitude it just seemed like their attitude towards socialism, uh, their attitude about things like that college tuition. You know, so many people my generation, come on, I didn't pay it. You know, I didn't. I paid my own way. What, what's the age group for millennials? Uh, millennials are people generally 1980 to 19. I'm looking around the room. Uh, there's only one millennial in the room, uh, and it, maybe two. Uh, they were born in 1980 the, to 1995. I want okay. to say. So my daughter was born in 1981. So she's 38 now. So she's a millennial. Yes, she is, and she's very politically left uh, in in all respects. Um, and very Afrocentric, too. Yeah. Yeah, so God bless the millennials. All right, uh, let's not lose track of the play. Uh, one more time, give everybody the information of where it's playing, the theater, uh, anything else you want to say about it. Yeah, I want to, I do would love to say that as much as it is about these journeys and, and the slave trade it, and being a, a rollicking adventure story, it is also filled with humor and things that we can relate to just in, in watching how someone navigates the challenges of their life. Mm -hmm. And so there's something for anyone to connect to in this story. Uh, so it runs until April 5th at Lifeline Theater, 6912 North Glenwood in Rogers Park Community. And you may get tickets by visiting www.lifelinetheater.com. LifelineTheater.com. Uh, thank you very much, both of you, for coming on the show and talking about the, the play and all these issues. I'm Ben Jarofsky. That's another Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody.